Hey, this is the last coffee house. This is Anti-Fragile by Nassim Nicholas Taleb. Now, we all have fragilities. For instance, one of mine is explosions. I am fragile to explosions. But they actually have a deep philosophical significance that is explored by this particular author. Anti-Fragile, this particular book, is the fourth book in a philosophical treatise on uncertainty. The five books are collectively called Incerto. The subtitle of this book is Things That Gain From Randomness, and the author describes it as, quote, Some things benefit from shocks. They thrive and grow when exposed to volatility, randomness, disorder, and stressors, and love, adventure, risk, and uncertainty, end quote. Now, I really like this guy. <laughs> he seems like he has a sincere interest in cultivating the best characteristics in people to make them ready for the broadest range of the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to, and I am much appreciative of it. I've already saved his other books that preceded this. There are three other ones, and I'm going to read those at some point, but I think he's really on to something really important here. So the contents of the books, of course, we will go through as we always do. We'll talk about the contents of the book with a little editorializing in the midst. We'll talk about a more formal analysis at the end of the qualities of the book and possible deprivations thereof. And then we'll go into a kind of big picture so we can unfold it into a broader idea of our journey to being the greatest human beings of all time. So the contents. Idea. Suppressing volatility leads to fragility. Volatility is an important thing and something that gives us information. So it's something like neurotically protective parents who protect their children, which is actually much worse for the kid. One way that he described it, the author described it, was he writes with his scars. And another concept that comes from another of his books is that you have to be ready for black swans. Black swan events are those things that come out and they can wreck populations, they can wreck people, individuals. But those are the things that you have to be ready for. And this idea of fragility, anti-fragility, is the way that it can be conceptualized and you can have a framework for being able to approach how to be prepared for all possible incarnations of life and what it'll throw at you. Now, I want to be very clear here. This isn't like some kind of simp or simplistic self-help kind of a structure that he's going with. So there's a spectrum. There is, a, on the, we'll say the left, fragile. In the middle is robust. And on the right is anti-fragile. So fragility is self-explanatory. It's something that you are susceptible or vulnerable to things that happen. And obviously you'll have particular vulnerabilities. And this can be anything, any complex system. This can be any individual. This is just how these systems work. And then in the middle is robust. If you are robust, then you're able to withstand something happening, something bad happening. But it's a neutral position. So that's all you do is withstand it. Now for anti-fragile, it's that once you're hit with this thing, that you improve as a result of it. So as in the subtitle, things that gain from randomness. So this would obviously be the ideal in this framework. Now to explore this particular concept, he does bring up ideas like the Sword of Damocles versus a Hydra. Obviously the Sword of Damocles, you are sitting under it and waiting for it to ultimately enact this calamity. Whereas the Hydra, it's constantly getting its head cut off, but it just grows more as a result of it. It's suffering these calamities, but becoming stronger as a result. He talked about some people in ancient Greece or Rome and how there was a lot of Greek and Roman history and mythology that was built into which is awesome, obviously. But there was a person there as an example who was a proto-anti-fragilista, we'll call him, and he took poison, you know, in small doses to become immune to it. Of course, later when he tried to commit suicide, he couldn't do it with poison, so that was a pain. 
but it's that idea of coming more capable as a result of the shocks that you suffer as opposed to just trying to be as safe and stable as you can be. And one thing, he put it this way, so if you're tired, go to the gym, put in a workout. If you're busy, get busier. If these are the things that you want to complain about, then, <laughs> then just push it to do more. Stressors are information. So the more that you can inflict upon yourself or have inflicted upon you, the more information that you get and the stronger, the more anti-fragile that you're going to be. When it comes to capitalism, he talked about it in terms of how the economy actually doesn't want you to survive. That's why so many, like 85% within five years, businesses fail. The economy doesn't want you to survive, and he offered this idea of a National Entrepreneur Day, saying that most of you will fail, and thank you. <laughs> That's the, the presentation that is given to all the entrepreneurs. Most of you are going to fail. Most of you suck, but thank you for what you do brings up Switzerland and Levant of Lebanon as examples of governments acting in such a way that they're trying to be anti-fragile as opposed to robust or allowing themselves to be fragile. So in Switzerland, there are tons of small units instead of a big government that decides what's going to happen. So you have this, this buildup from the bottom. And it creates the right kind of stability because there's that foundational base that levels out the kind of risk-taking and the problems. And we'll see this. It's The big idea is the asymmetry between the things that you can gain versus losses or the good versus the bad. It's those asymmetries. So if you have something like Switzerland that has a bunch of small units instead of a big government, then if something goes wrong amidst any of the small units, then that problem is dispersed throughout the entirety of the system, as opposed to if something goes wrong with the big government, then that can cause a whole bunch of problems, asymmetrically cause problems throughout the rest. And he brings up the Levant of Lebanon to say that this area specifically had 12,000 years of prosperity, and they engaged in local control until they were enveloped into a larger government. This caused the problem. Obviously, Lebanon isn't the uh, most stable, enjoyable place at this point in history. And obviously in America, and this is me talking, we have that kind of a proximate situation that is trying to be overturned. We have a republic, not a democracy, so we have a bunch of states and localities within those states that make a bunch of the decisions. And we read multiple books, I know, that have talked about how localities need to be making these decisions because they are more plugged in to what's necessary in these local areas. But of course, that, there's an attempt, a dramatic attempt, by a, a lot of politicians to overturn this whole idea and make it more centralized. So the origin of financial crises is discussed. And here, what you need to think of is that small changes become catastrophes. And again, it's the asymmetry. So things that you would do in a forest, if you have a forest that dries out repeatedly, what you would do is have a controlled burn. So rather than waiting until it all stacks up so it'll be catastrophic, you have a controlled burn that you use to clear out the brush so that when it does happen outside of your control, that it won't be as severe. In one example here, it's a very simple example that makes perfect sense, is that if you have a guy who gets home at the same time every day, every single day it's, it's 5.15, gets home at 5.15, 5.15, then any day where he is a minute or two minutes or five minutes off, it's going to seem more extreme than if he tended to get home at 5 o'clock some days, 6 o'clock, 6.30, 8 o'clock on other days. So it's the asymmetry between the negative and the positive in that that is the problem. That's why you can't be so obsessed with stability. Because then when you have any kind of a discord, then the system might overreact to it, and you might have more severe problems than you would have otherwise had. He calls it the time bomb of stability. 
So there's a concession that intervention might be necessary in some areas, you know, within a, a, a complex system. You might have to intervene in some places. But you have to be worried about, and this is what you should be fixing your system to be resistant to, you know, as an anti-fragile system, as opposed to a fragile or robust system. Resistant to the time bomb of stability, because the whole time that you're stable, it's just counting down to when something, you know, something from the outside occurs that's going to cause a more severe, disproportionately severe problem than the very slow, positive things that have been happening up until that point. Predictions are, are a problem. There's a danger in predictions, and he wants to use a non-predictor method. So predictions lead to more risk-taking. When you have predictions, and not only are they often wrong, but they have a kind of observer effect on the way that things actually occur thereafter. And you have people who are more inclined to take risks and bigger risks because they have these predictions that they can rely on or say that they rely on brings up Seneca the Stoic, who desired the challenge of calamity. And this is where we really, really get into the idea of the upside-downside asymmetry. So when you have a system that has very small upsides, you know, during a, the stable period, and you have the time bomb stability growing, and then you have extreme downside that comes in the system from uh, any kind of aberration, that's a problem. When the upside is minimal, but the potential downside is massive, that's where that's what you should be avoiding. That's what you have to change prior to, you know, those things coming to fruition. It should be more tinkering than research. So when he talks about specifically when it comes to science, when it comes to academics, when it comes to medicine, especially he'll go into medicine, that the functionaries in these areas are too teleological. Of course, teleology means that you have a goal and then you try to arrive at that goal. Tinkerers just do whatever and see what results, but a teleological system just has a goal and they try to get to that goal. So the problem is that when academics have a script to follow, which most academics are going to have a script to follow, that's what they're, the incentive structure around academics, that's what it's about then the academic won't realize what they have if they stumble upon something else because they're aiming at a target. So if they miss that target, they don't care about all the stuff on the outside. In private business or amongst uh, private entrepreneurs, then whatever they land on, if it's going to be beneficial, if it's going to be useful or whatever, then they're going to use it because they don't necessarily have a target in the same way. And they even have a concept for this obliquity. So finding new applications for things such as like for aspirin when it's, it's used in one way, but they find a new application for it. So they just use it in the other way. Whereas some kind of a researcher or an academic might say that, okay, well, I'm just trying to tend to headaches. So I'm just trying to figure out something that's going to deal with the headaches. Different companies like Tiffany's, they started out by selling stationery and then ended up what they're doing now. Nokia began as a paper mill. Onieda, the silversmiths, were apparently a religious cult at first, so they switched from the religious cult business over to silversmithery. So tinkering involves a lot of small losses with some big wins, you know, the rare big wins. And that's the way it needs to be structured to avoid that dramatic asymmetry. Brings up Nietzsche, our boy Nietzsche, and that Nietzsche really figured out this anti-fragility idea of creative destruction, and having read Nietzsche, I can definitely see that through line when it comes to his books. But specifically Dionysus and the, the idea from Dionysus of the mythology around Dionysus of creatively destructive and destructively creative. And he brings up this Ernest Renault. And there's, uh, again, as always, when we talk about these books, each one of these particular pockets of, of a concept, we could just spend an entire hour just talking about each one of those to get them leveled out so we know where we are. So 
Forgive me for jumping from topic to topic here. All of it is under the broad canopy of this idea of anti-fragility and the spectrum that we brought up earlier. So just keep that in mind. Okay, so, but Renault talks about how logic excludes nuance and that truth is actually in the nuances. And this is an important idea because I'd love to use, when we talk in these terms, I love to use logic, you know, reason, whatever. But logic is kind of a cleaner version of it as the goal. It's the the pristine, clean, when you carve everything else away, you have that logic there. And that's how you get to what reality is. But here, the way Renault is presenting it is that when you try to look at things in those clean boxes, like you're going to be able to stack them together so easily and make your pyramid, then you're actually excluding what the truth is. Because the truth is about those nuances. So we have this idea, and I think I brought it up in a, in a different book when we were talking about a different book of this conflict between archetypal communication and reality communication, just plain, clean, without the imposition of our cognitive abilities, <laughs> a reality communication. And so here, this is that idea of we have to be careful about which way we're trying to communicate. Obviously, the truth is in the nuances, and it's way too complex for us to be able to cognitively represent, even just even if we understood it ourselves 100% without any kind of bias or limitations when it comes to processing or anything like that, even if we got there, we would still have to communicate it. And that's where you end up with a, a lot of issues when it comes to having those clean blocks that you're going to be able to stack into a pyramid when it comes to logic. So, a really important, I might try to find a book by this person in particular, Ernest Renault. So we can talk about that in specific. <laughs> but anyway, so fragility versus probability. This is an important distinction, and it's something that, again, probably need a book just talking about this in particular. I'm going to read this book again. I'm not sure how this is going to structure when it comes to being able to rediscuss these concepts. But again, we might have to do a just a discussion of the book after the book. <laughs> so we lay these things out and then be able to discuss those in the future, especially if I can get some more direct engagement with people who are also reading these books. If I have some form for that, I, I'm terrible with this stuff, social media and the like. So I don't know how the best way to do that. But if I can get more engagement about these books, then we can have, you know, here are the comments, here are the discussions that were had about the book. And this is the second episode on it. So we can really just discuss Anyway, but fragility versus probability. So the author talks about fragility and anti-fragility and isn't a fan of probability as a method for making these determinations and brings up this concept of a terrorist on a plane. So we do all these checks, you know, when it comes to getting on planes. We have multiple levels of checking people. We have all the, the surveillance and all sorts of things that are supposed to protect us from allowing terrorists to get on planes. Do we actually think that there are many terrorists that are getting on these planes with all the number of planes that we have on any given day? No, we don't. We don't actually think probabilistically that there are a bunch of terrorists on these planes. But we are extremely fragile to terrorism. <laughs> so there's an asymmetry there that we have tons of failures <laughs> when it comes to checking hundreds of thousands of people who are trying to get onto an airplane who don't have anything to do with terrorism. But we're so fragile to terrorism that because it has such an asymmetric damage that it can do, that we do these things to make sure that it doesn't happen. So it's a difference between the fragility analysis versus the probability analysis. Not just thinking, okay, what's the probability that a terrorist is getting on? today because if uh, you know 364 days a year a terrorist doesn't get it on we'll just get rid of all the security we don't need it <laughs> if we're just thinking in probabilistic terms so the author says that there are ways that we can modify our exposure and learn to get out of trouble in this way and again the asymmetry there's this non-linearity just sticking with planes for one for a little bit and flights in general if a flight is early 
it's only going to be slightly early <laughs> when we talk about all the flights in all the countries around the world. When it's early, it's just slightly early. You know, it's 5, 15 minutes, whatever. But when you have a delay, it can be a massive delay. It can be hours. It can be days of delay for a plane to arrive. And this is something that happens with most anything that's complex. Any complex system, you're going to have this asymmetry that you have to deal with. Governments especially, they uh, underestimate costs and they have this confidence bias and then they end up overspending whatever their costs were. And this could, of course, just be a matter of a complex system engaging in the same process or this could be just the kind of corruption that governments engage in where they say, oh no, we need this much, so give me that much, but I know you're going to give me more anyway, so <laughs> I'll just take it, I'll under underbid and then take more when I need it later anyway. When it comes to trading, like uh, trading on the stock market, errors with humans that are made by humans are smaller and they're more distributed over the system. But computers, you know, this is something that is something we have to deal with more recently. Computers can have massive errors and this can lead to tens of millions of dollars being lost in a few seconds because of the way computers function. So it's something you have to pay attention to. Another example is overfishing tuna. This can undermine ecosystems and cause huge problems, but hunter-gatherers historically Historically, what they would do is they just switch to a different resource. If they went after too much tuna for one day, then they'd go after squirrels the next one or something like that. So there's a section here that's a little more technical that talks about Fannie Mae and the collapse of Fannie Mae and how it costed taxpayers billions of dollars. And Fannie Mae made its own risk calculations internally rather than listening to anybody else. Apparently, the author specifically tried to tell everybody that Fannie Mae was going to go under <laughs> because of the asymmetry between the bad and the good. So you can be good for a long time, and then one bad thing because of the asymmetry can absolutely wipe you out. And that was uh, something I experienced personally when I was trying day trading for about three or four months. I was trying to <laughs> day trade, and I had spent three months you know, trying to be rigorous and figuring this stuff out and doing a very good job and making a good deal of money. And then one bad day wiped out three months of growth. I wake up and suddenly it's all gone. Everything that I'd worked for for three months was all gone. So it's that asymmetry that you have to be worried about. And I hadn't made myself anti-fragile. I was still fragile, very fragile, to something like that happening, that kind of a correction. And then he talks about how this, he actually suggests this to the IMF from what I, not the Impossible Mission Found, no, it's the <laughs> International Monetary Fund, that they should be measuring fragility instead of risk. That This is a very different kind of a concept, and it's going to help long-term make things function better. They, of course, rejected this. One of the questions I have about this whole idea is I wonder if it applies to emotional states, if it applies to social media, and just to information exchange in general. I wonder if at the individual level you can have that where something positive emotionally, you can have minor positive stability for a long time in one event that asymmetrically sends you right down and kills all the progress that you had. And even in relationships or something like that, I wonder if it applies. But another example in traffic. So variations in traffic, something that was unexpected that comes from the outside, variations in traffic are almost always negative. There are few positive disturbances, and there can be absolutely catastrophic disturbances in traffic patterns. The author specifically says that 1% modification of systems can lower fragility by 99%. If you just take a few steps. So in various industries, it's a small number of customers that are the major problems. When it comes to, I remember reading a study about drivers and how there's the bottom 20% of drivers, the bottom 10% of drivers are responsible for 50 or 60% of the accidents or something like that. Don't quote me on those numbers, but it, it was something dramatic. 
In the book, he talks about how half the population accounts for only 3% of medical costs. So half, 50% of the population only incur 3% of the medical costs, and the other 50% do 97% of it. The sickest 10% of the population consumes 64% of the total medical cost pie. And then, bam, he goes into medicine. He's really not a fan of, of medicine in general as an industry. There was a day that he was doing this particular kind of a, I think it was some kind of natural exercise that he had heard about somewhere. So he's hopping along rocks or something like that to exercise. And he fell and busted his nose. So he goes to the doctor and the doctor says to put ice on it. And he asks, okay, why do, we, why do you put ice on it? What is the point of putting ice on it? And the doctor gave some snarky remark. And then he went home and tried to do research on why you would put ice on, on your nose like that. And couldn't find legitimate research that said this is the reason that you do it. But the point is, when it comes to most of any of these kinds of treatments, that healthcare causes fragility. And there's this idea, he uses this word many times throughout the book, iatrogenic, which is relating to illness caused by medical examination or treatment. So this is something that healthcare causes the problems that it's later going to be charging you for. And incentive structures are obviously the big thing that you have to look out for when it comes to society in general, what are you incentivizing? Just like when it comes to COVID or anything else. So pharma, the healthier you, you get, pharma is looking for disease now in healthier and healthier people. So they have to find out more ways to make you sick. And I'm not saying, you know, injecting you with Ebola or something like that, but finding new ailments that they can now treat you for. There's this drive for more medication. This is something that's been talked about for decades now, is this uh, overprescription of things like Ritalin or antidepressants or whatever. This is a, a pharmacological drive to try to get more customers. Now, obviously, this isn't something that is necessarily some kind of broad conspiracy that doctors are doing this kind of thing or companies, pharmaceutical companies are doing this kind of thing. This is just the natural reaction to an incentive structure that they're trying to get paid more, which is something that they need to be doing so that they can survive and feed their family and all that kind of thing. So what do you do? You find more ways to get paid and this is the way to do it. Something like sciatica, when you look at studies, the author says, is that patients are the same a few years after surgery. Now, I had a couple of clients with sciatica, and they actually had this experience, that they would have multiple surgeries and it wouldn't do anything. It wouldn't help at all. So when it comes to medicine, his position is that there is a larger downside to treatment, medical treatment, except for the most extreme cases. You know, obviously, if you have severely advanced cancer or something like that, then uh, yeah, treatment. But there's a larger downside for this treatment than there is an upside, and there's an asymmetry in that. You get small certain gains at the risk of massive mistakes. So you might get prescribed uh, this particular medication that's going to help today, just generally. But if you get a massive mistake, then it can cost you a whole lot more, you know, your life or your health in general. So his, his position on this, what nature does is good until proven otherwise. What man does is opposite. Nature is more computationally able than people are. And he cites this, uh, there's a study apparently, breakfast has been shown to have no benefit or be harmful. And something that has just completely resonated and made perfect sense with me now, he says after this, lions hunt to eat, not eat to hunt. Now, I haven't eaten breakfast, it's been uh, a while now. I only eat breakfast when I'm hanging out with somebody or something like that. Because it's nice to go sit down and it's warm and, and you can sit and talk and all that. But generally, I do not eat breakfast. I just go to work and then I'll have lunch and I have dinner. But that idea, lions hunt to eat, not eat to hunt. 
<laughs> okay, and then he has some suggestions here and he just kind of hits you right in the gut and tells you, okay, this is the way it's going to be. If you take risks and face your fate with dignity, there is nothing you can do that makes you small. If you don't take risks, there's nothing you can do that makes you grand. And right now in society, there are talkers at the top where there should be risk takers and entrepreneurs. Those are the people who should be at the top in society when it comes to how we value what people do. I think that's absolutely right. We have a lot of talkers, especially over the last administration. That's what it seemed like. It was so much talk and so little actually got done. I'm talking about the eight years of Obama-Biden. More advice here. If you see fraud and don't say fraud, you are the fraud. This isn't even advice. This is a challenge. This is like throwing the gauntlet down to everybody who hears this. If you see fraud and don't say fraud, you are the fraud. And then he goes on to attack Thomas Friedman and Joseph Stiglitz for being very wrong on major policy points over the last several years and how there's an absence of penalty for these talkers who end up causing harm or supporting policies that do cause harm. And bam, punching again. This is a, a left hook right to the liver. Suckers try to win arguments. Non-suckers try to win. That was, yeah, that was a shot. <laughs> that was a pretty big shot. Something that I have always been extremely adept at is winning arguments. And I ha hate to be a sucker as a, as a result, but I think everybody needs to take that to heart, is that suckers try to win arguments. Non-suckers try to win. And brings up that there was this process of decimation that the Romans used to use in their army. When they would lose, the Roman generals would get everybody together. Now, this obviously, this is a dire situation. But when it comes to the incentive structure, one thing you have to make sure is that you have the right incentives in place. And if you lost, they would bring together all of the soldiers and they would kill 10% of the army. Not the 10 worst percent, 10% of the army at random. Any more than 10% obviously could lead to incredible weakness when it came to further battles. But this was the kind of incentive structure that forced everybody to work as hard as they could. And this is Roman decimation. <laughs> then he signs off with some various things. Uh, but one thing that stuck out was that you can hardly trust any statistically dependent sciences. Which I think is an important concept for everybody to have. Okay, to switch into the analysis. It's a hell of a framework. Like I said, I really like this guy. Obviously, this is a philosophical treatise, and we try to make this distinction when we come into it. Philosophical treatise versus uh, some kind of scientifically rigorous study of something. Any given claim needs to be vetted, but I think he's speaking more archetypically than he is when it comes to empirically. There are a bunch of things here being communicated, and I think empirically, most of the things that he talks about are extremely important and well-supported. But each one would have to be vetted just in the same way and in the most appropriate way to try to figure out how close you can get to reality. But archetypically, the ideas that he comes into are kinds of true and tested wisdom that everybody needs to be, at least be aware of and that will, on balance, dramatically improve everything that goes on in the country. This big idea of anti-fragility and seeking to limit fragility rather than trying to make things more safe and stable and the controlled burn idea when it comes to everything, when it comes to society, economy, your relationships, you as a human being. I think it's extremely important, extremely useful. And nature spent four billion years figuring this stuff out, and I love how we just, with our hubris, try to stroll in and pretend like we know better. But big picture-wise, this has turned into a mammoth of an episode. I apologize for that. But I've only been doing like one book a week now, so uh, maybe it just makes sense to have larger episodes. 
So big picture wise, I think this concept is applicable in everything when it comes to gender roles in society and the kinds of negative effects that we've had as a result of attacking those left and right when it comes to hate speech on social media. Again, the fragility, robustness, anti-fragility, and the fact that how much better things would be if we had a concept of anti-fragility as opposed to this coddling idea that is trying to be foisted on us. You know, failure on tests and bad grades, these are things that students are being inoculated against by getting rid of them, by making it so you can't fail students who do a really poor job. Or getting fired, inability to pay bills, these kinds of extra stressors that can lead people to make better decisions or do better things that we try to take away and that can sap motivation if they have some kind of inoculation on the other side. Peanut allergies. I think the book that we originally talked about this, what was that? That was Irreversible Damage. Did she talk about those? Abigail Schreier. But peanut allergies, that was something that skyrocketed because we started sequestering our children from peanuts because we were so terrified of of them developing allergies. So then what happened was you had this asymmetry that, yeah, you, you would have years of no discomfort from peanuts because they didn't have any access to them or encounter the peanuts at all. But then when they would encounter peanuts, then suddenly, yeah, they have this severe allergy and they have to deal with that now. And now we have to remove peanuts from everywhere. So number one, I th- we need a renewed cultural commitment to personal growth. This used to be something that was archetypically ubiquitous amongst when it came to books, when it came to movies, when it came to every idea of what people need to do. It was about personal growth, personal responsibility and personal growth. And this is something that I think if you studied it now, I wonder if most cultural stories, at least in, the, in Western nations, that books and academia and Hollywood are more about people already being complete at the outset, that there's this kind of complete identity that everybody has, and it's the outside world that needs to change. It doesn't have anything to do with your arc. (laughs) Okay, but I think this really plugs into a broader narrative of what we're trying to figure out of how we really motivate people in the right way. We create the best incentive structures to have the best possible society and civilization in general, and this idea of anti-fragility, this should be what we are building our civilization on instead of accepting fragility and just trying to have as much stability as we can and trying to protect and coddle everybody from any kind of natural shock that the flesh is heir to. So anyway, this was the last coffee house. I really appreciate you listening to this. Like I said, I'm going to work on um, try to figure out some way that we can have broader discussions on this stuff. But until then, I hope you keep listening and I'll see you on the next one. All right, bye. <laughs>